I read from God's holy, good word. Revelation chapter 21, I'll read verses 1 through 8 as we look not only at the new heavens and the new earth, but the city, the people of God, made new by Christ's redeeming work. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and be their God And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God. And he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. As far as the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, our desire is that we might be ready to receive you, O Lord, the one who is bringing your kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, and even now as we dwell Not fully, awaiting the fullness of the new heavens and the new earth, yet already inaugurated in your work of ministry on earth. And as your city is coming, glimpses of it already beheld by us. Even this morning, the worship of the saints together adorned in the beauty of Christ's righteousness. Holy, beloved, being prepared. O Lord, may we be a people devoted to the one who is coming, who has come, who will come again, that our lives might be transformed grace unto grace so that we are fit to receive you with joy, longing, and expectation that we might declare to the world, our Savior is coming. The King is coming. And so repent, be baptized, give yourself to him. We pray these things then in your name. Amen.
as we come to Revelation 21 again this morning, we come to what should be for us more than any celebratory event in our earthly lives, the day in which Christ consummates, that is to bring in full all that he has promised to us in his word. It is not fitting by way of introduction to review the book thus far, (laughs) but it is important for us to remember why John is writing to the churches in Asia Minor and to the church in every age. Revelation is given, as all scripture is, for our benefit in godliness As all scripture is given to teach us something of God, what he has for us, and how we are to live in light of God's word. The catechism makes this very clear. Even the children's catechism. Why is the word given to us? So that we might glorify God. How do we glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. When John writes in Revelation 21 of the new heavens and the new earth, he sees something that has already been coming, but is not yet fully revealed. Chronologically speaking, verse, or chapters 19, 20, and 21 coincide and one follows the other. John beholds the glorious estate of that city, that is built and is established and dwells within this new characteristic age of sinless perfection. And so I believe it was two weeks ago now, the point that I made is that there is much of the new heavens and new earth that we read in Revelation 21 that is sinless, there is no more crying or pain that we experience now. And yet in Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 65, he speaks of the new heavens and the new earth also having some death within it. What we find is overlap, the overlap of the old age and the new age, the age that is to come. And you and I are stuck in the blessed overlappedness of it all. So that when we go to funerals and we bury loved ones and we go to the graveside and their bodies go into the ground, we know that we will see their bodies again. We will be reunited with those who die in Christ. And so the scriptures say we mourn as those not without hope. In fact, Paul speaks of it even as a kind of sleep And it is not only our souls that will live forever, but one day the bodies of all of those who have died will be raised, some to everlasting glory, some to everlasting damnation, which we read in Revelation 21, that lake, Gehenna, hell that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It is that eternal condemnation. And as we await the coming in full, we live now in expectation of what is to come. And so our faithful discipleship on earth 
is connected to our eschatological hope. Eschatological hope means our hope in how we think things will end. Eschatology is just the study, the doctrine of the end of all things. It is the bookend of cosmology, how what we think about how everything started, how we think everything will end. Those two doctrines are very, very important. Essential doctrines. Now this morning I want to talk about the New Jerusalem, but I don't want to talk so much about the characteristics of the city itself, but the people. And then in the end, I want to talk about how it is that you and I are made citizens of that heavenly kingdom, that kingdom that is coming. Under three, these three points, the first, the new Jerusalem. And I want you to underline the word new. The new Jerusalem in contrast to the old. The second point, a new city for a new people. You can underline those two words, new people. And then lastly, what makes these people new? And you can underline that word, what? What is it that enjoins us into that new city? First point, the new Jerusalem. Well, as soon as we speak of the, old, uh, the new Jerusalem, what do we think of? What about the old Jerusalem? Well, much of Revelation is devoted to the old Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem is that people who were once the covenant people of God, who betrayed the Messiah, who killed the prophets, who cried out with one voice, crucify him. And when they were given the option by Pilate for Barabbas the murderer or Christ the Messiah, what did they say? We will take death. We will take the murderer. Such was their hardness of heart. And in the same vein that they rejected the word of God, that they killed the prophets before the Son of God became flesh, who he, before he became the Messiah and walked on earth, in the same way, they put John the Baptist to death. They put the apostles to death. They put the church fathers to death. One of the things that we will see in the fall, when we get to that series on church history, was the faithfulness of the church fathers in the time of a very violent Roman empire. And there was one such disciple, Polycarp, interesting name. Polycarp was sentenced to death, and he counted it a privilege to die for Christ. If you don't have this book, get the book, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Fox's Book of Martyrs almost single-handedly, apart from the Word of God, of course, helped to reform all of Great Britain. In many of the stories of the ancient saints, Polycarp was bound, tied to a stake, set alight, and as the fire came up, it went around him in an arc, and it did not touch him. He merely tanned, the account says. It is though his skin became like golden bronze. Seeing then that Polycarp would not die by the flames, the soldiers ran him through with a spear. And he bled so much that he put out the flames. And there were those in the arena at the time of his death who were screaming, having never worshipped Christ, Many there cried out for salvation. The story of the church is 
It is an amazing story. And the men that we will one day see, I, I cannot wait. Polycarp, will you show me the scar from which the, bottom, the blood flowed? Peter himself did not count himself worthy to die as his redeemer and so was asked to be crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. John, who wrote the book of Revelation, the last living apostle, all of this is part of the glorious New Jerusalem. And so there is a characteristic that divides the old and the new. And what is that? Who you say the Messiah is. Old Jerusalem has been rejected. And the new Jerusalem is built upon the foundation. Remember what Christ says in the Gospels? Tear down this building and in three days I will raise it up again. And they go, what are you talking about? It took years for Herod's temple to be built. And he says, in case you missed it, right? This is what you don't want in movies is overt exposition. The Gospel writer says he was talking about himself, his body. For those of us, like me, who are slow of mind and understanding And in the same way that old Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, not just because Rome sacked it, but because Christ used Rome to bring judgment upon those who denied him, all that is outside of the redeeming work of Christ that is not joined into the first fruits of Christ's resurrection will pass away. So what that means is in the time that you have on earth, whatever you do... It needs to be in obedience to God's word, and it needs to be for God's glory. It does not have to be a, what we often call, spiritual work, right? When you make coffee at home for your family, it's not different than when you make coffee at church for the congregation, is it? Right? The folks who do all this don't go in and bless the coffee and therefore somehow it's a more exalted work, right? It's just coffee. Well, it is coffee. <laughs> but when it is done out of obedience and for the glory of God, according to his word, it is part of the work of building the kingdom how you feed your dog, how you do the dishes, how you prepare meals, how you arrange every facet of your life and why you do it and who you do it for matters. And in the same way, you can waste your whole life doing the very same thing believers do and have none of it be an effort of preparation for the receiving of the kingdom of Christ. Children, this is why your parents say to you, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Thus saith the Lord. Why? Because as soon as your parent says, sweetheart, please go do this for me. And you go, it's done. You have missed the boat. And the opportunity for that work, apart from repentance, to stand. Children, how many of your bedrooms cleaned will actually survive the fire because it is not done 
for the glory of God. What is passing away? Everything that is not done of faith, the Bible says. Only that which is done of faith counts. And our confession is so helpful when the other follow-up question is, well, what are acts of faith? Those things that are according to the word of God and are done for the glory of God. Now, who can glorify God? Only those with new hands, clean hearts, those who are regenerate. And so, though the unbeliever may keep the law of God, none of what he does on earth will stand. Think of that for a moment. That when the unbeliever, by the the common grace and mercy of God, because of the law of God is written on his heart, though he or she may do what is according to God's word, because they do not do it for God's glory, it will burn up. And there is a lot There is a lot that will burn. But there is a lot. There is a lot. And most of that you have never seen. You have never heard of. You will never witness in person. The vast majority of your faithful acts are done outside of the visible work of of our joining together as a body of believers. And here is the great deceiving power of the devil in a social media age. If a meal is prepared, or my child does something special, and I don't post it on Facebook, did it ever happen? Did it? Now, I don't expect you parents to post the failings of your children or your spouse. My husband yelled at me today, and I, I just want to say I love him so much. Right? There are pictures no one puts on the internet, right? Like when the face is contorted. In the same way, our lives, we often think our lives are actually the collection of the good moments that can be captured by a Polaroid. But that is not what they are. In fact, we see earlier in the white throne judgment, every single act done, thought, word, deed by men is recorded. And the only way that you and I will escape the fire, of which we read in Revelation 21.8, is that our names are also recorded in the Lamb's book of life. That book trumps the other book. This is what it means to be justified in Christ Jesus. His work is imputed to us so that we never have to fear. That does not mean we are licentious. Because a heart that is transformed by grace longs to do what? To be made new. To do things. To feel things. To think things that will not be judged as Jerusalem was judged. Because what is coming has no mixture of impurity within it. That is why it is new. And the testimony of the newness being worked out in your heart is evidenced by your longing for that newness. Jonathan Edwards wrote a series of resolutions 
And these resolutions are simply a record of how he desires to live holy before God and men. And one of the things that he wrote is, I desire to live in such a way that I would not do something after which the trumpet sounds and Christ's return and I had just done it. Right? When we sin, we are less likely to long for the coming of Christ in righteousness. We don't want him to come yet. And in a way that is very superficial and legalistic, we often say, Lord, can you give me some time to do some penance? That's not how we ought to think. But sin interrupts more than anything our sweet, innocent fellowship with God and men. You felt this as family members. When you are divided against one another, physical contact, you are repelled by it. I can't touch you right now. I don't want to hug. You just yelled at me. In fact, proper discipline of parents of children is actually what nurtures sweetness. It's the inverse of the way the world thinks. As the city of God is coming, and it is coming, now inaugurated, not fully, not yet fully, we ought to look to the things that characterize that new city and say, this is how I wish to live. Because it is a new city, and that new city will endure. Now, secondly, I'm all over my notes. I'm borrowing from all of these headings. I'll try to keep it organized. It's a new city for a new people. And so before we look at the sort of physical characteristics symbolically of this described city, I want to talk about some things that John speaks of here. Verse 2, it's a holy city. It's the new Jerusalem, as I've already said. It comes out of heaven in contrast to what? This city that men build. When men build religions, where do they necessarily originate? Babel is the great example. And in that book of Genesis... God immediately reminds us and lets us know this is what happens when you seek to build a city from earth to heaven. You cannot do it. You only get so high. In fact, Moses writes, God came down to look at it. He did not come down to redeem those people. He came down to judge them. And their pale, ineffective efforts to actually achieve what they were after. And that was to escape the curse through man-made religion. That is what our cities oftentimes are built for the glory of. Ayn Rand speaks of this. And at the heart of every great city is a coliseum of modern distraction. There are institutions of organized infant slaughter. And there are people that say, the cities are where you ought to be. I'm fine. There's a lot of wonderful things about cities. People are there. But murderous people are there. And the reason they gather together is not to worship God. Their gathering is not to be unified in worship, is to be unified in what? The only thing that can bring any semblance of strength while on earth if you are in rebellion, and that is numbers. 
And so there are many Christians alive today going, how did the free sex movement of the 60s go into the grooming movement of the 21st century? Are you serious? Have you not read Romans 1? All they want is mass approval so that they can have, knowing that they are wretched before God's eyes, some kind of freedom from the guilt and shame that they feel. But they will pass away. And the only way in which we will be planted and be new is if we understand the love that makes us new. It is a beloved city. It is an adorned city. And I'm sure every pastor that's ever preached this speaks of seeing his wife for the first time. You know what I mean? His wife coming down the aisle. It's impossible to get away from that visual. In fact, it was such a day that there were hours of preparation before the ceremony began. And that day stands above the rest, not just because of the beautiful dress and the exquisite hair and makeup, all of those things, but what did those things testify to? I'm not going to Walmart. It would be strange to see a woman show up at Walmart in a prom. Maybe it would. What do they normally wear? Well, you can't be casual enough. In fact, there's a website devoted to the people you see at Walmart. And you know what it doesn't look a lot unlike now? The people you see in evangelical churches in America. I don't mean, ladies, I see curlers. But you know what I see? I'm more flesh than I ought to see. You dress at church like you would dress when you go play 18 holes golf. And the reason I think the church often does this is because when the world sees the church and the church thinks too much of the way the world looks at them, they go, I think if we dress up too much, we're going to create this impenetrable barrier, a hump they can't get over, and we're going to damage our witness. You've heard this? The problem with winsomeness over righteousness is we end up becoming like that which is passing away, not that which is being renewed. Now, I'm not saying that unless you have a three-piece suit tailored for your body, you've broken it. What I am saying is that our hearts are being adorned and made lovely each and every day. This is the Spirit's work to prepare us for the day of Christ's coming. You should want to look good for your husband. Someone will take that, and they're going to post that one line, and they're going to eviscerate me online. But I'm talking about Christ and his church, and I'm also talking about wives and their husbands, obviously. But we ought to want to what? Be beautiful in the eyes of our husband. And how do we know what is beautiful? We read it in his word. And in the same way that parents prepare their daughters to be married, and how do they do that? Well, by teaching them manners, showing them how to dress. Please, no belching at the table, right? We're talking about the things that make you suitable 
to go into someone else's home and to be lovely. And as parents, in the same way that parents train their daughters, their children, sons, this is how you talk to a woman. This is how we are preparing you. The Father, by the Spirit, applies Christ's righteousness to us, and he, like a masterful potter, shapes us into that which is more and more like his son each and every day. And sometimes that shaping is painful. But it is all because we are beloved. And in the same way that we are loved, we see that the city is holy. And it is holy in two ways that are not unrelated. They are connected intimately to one another. We are holy because we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. The theological we word used for this is justified. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. We are holy because Christ's holiness is given to us. But when we read the book of Revelation earlier in the book, we also read that the saints have dressed themselves in righteousness. We work on our lived out, active faith plus works. This is what James speaks of. You show me your faith. I will show you my faith by what I do. In fact, when you see two people married, what is the expectation? Well, as sinners, the adjustment process of learning to live not as a single person, but as a one flesh union with another. And there are some things that have to die, whether it's opinions or habits, those types of things. You are learning to be one with the one who has redeemed you. We call that sanctification. And again, and in the same way as the city is coming, we are preparing our hearts for the day of Christ's return. We're preparing our hearts for the day of death. We are endeavoring to die well or to receive Christ if he comes while still living. The city is a holy city. The city is a beloved city. But this city that is a people, we, the Christians, this new people, will be wholly redeemed and comforted. In fact, this is what we read of at the end of this first part, ending in verse 4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Now, it is impossible for me to read this text and honestly to preach this text without a personal anecdote. Years ago, I went to a concert, Michael Card, with a buddy of mine from high school. I don't know high school, 18-year-old high school boys that go see Michael Card, but I was weaned on Michael Card. In fact, at night, my parents played the lullabies written by Michael Card. It was just full. A masterful songwriter and musician. And we went to his tour that was the... Well, my sermon series called The Unveiling, that's the name of his album, The Unveiling. And it's a series of songs written and taken from the book of Revelation. And he has a song of this chapter. And in the concert, he's basically just taking Revelation 21, verses 1 and really through 6, and he speaks of the glorious hope that belongs to the saints and the culmination of the end of suffering. And as I'm listening to him sing, it is impossible not to think of my older sister who died at four of leukemia. 
This was also a theme in our home. My parents didn't shy away about talking about it, and every time my mom talked about it, it was brutal, but it was necessary. And as I'm listening to this, all I can think of is, I'll get to see her. And I won't see her as a four-year-old with no hair going through chemotherapy, which is terrible, but hair, a resurrected body. And I'll tell you this, we don't want to go to heaven primarily because we'll see loved ones, but boy, oh boy, is it a great bonus. Right? I think of the children who've died in infancy. I think of old ones who've gone before us or those who were too young. I think of all of them, and I think to be rejoined, not in these, you know what I mean by family reunions, right? (laughs) Those kinds with the weird uncle. No, we will be redeemed. And then I flash forward four years later, and my dad and I are having dinner while I'm still at university, and he says to me, Joby, after 20 years, after 20 years, your sister died. I can finally say it was good that she died. And I said, what? He goes, I can say it's blessed. How can it not be blessed if it is God's perfect will? What is that? That is the tempering of sorrow with eternal perspective. And do you know what the world does not have? They have none of that. And if they say they do... They're borrowing it, and it's not real. There will come a time when those who are faithful to the end will get the reward that God has promised to them. This is the danger of Stoicism, and it's very popular right now. Stoicism is just another fleshly reaction to dealing with the problem of the curse. Stoicism says what? I'm too strong to let the world bother me. You know what you lose in Stoicism? Tears. The things we should, right? What are the saints doing faithfully all the way up until Revelation 21? They are crying. They are weeping. They are longing for the thing that they cannot get in order to be set in order. That is why we cry oftentimes. This intermingling. But there will come a time when all of that will be over. And Christ can do it because he has defeated death and hell. In the Heidelberg Catechism, how can I not read this? It speaks of our comfort now and its connection to our eschatological hope. We've, we've done this question and answer so many times. The question, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong. It's the language of union. We'll get there in just a moment. <laughs> Body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. 
He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. If you lack a wholehearted willingness, what should we contemplate? The day when Christ comes to gather us to himself. The day when Christ comes. What then makes us new? Well, it is God who makes us new. But it is only those who are united to Christ's death and baptism. Death and baptism and resurrection. How are we united to Christ Jesus? By faith. By a real saving, Christ-wrought faith. It is the triune Lord who makes us new. And even here in verse 5, Christ says, believe that I will do this. Why can we believe it? Children, sometimes maybe you have trouble believing your parents, either exhortations or warnings. Perhaps sometimes we have Trouble believing the promises that men make, and why not? Because men often break their promises. Even when we intend to keep our promises, oftentimes we are powerless to keep them. But not the Alpha and Omega. And here in verse 6, we see the language of Christ's second coming and the power and efficacy of its completion to the completion of his mission in his first coming. Remember what Christ says? When it is all said and done on the cross, it is done, it is finished, it is complete. And we look at those words and we say, praise God. And we come to the table and we remember Christ's death until he comes. Because when Christ says it is finished, what does that mean? It brings an end to all of our striving. We come to the foot of the cross of Christ and we lay down our efforts. And here Christ says it is done because our efforts in saving faith, in sanctification, were done. It's over. But it is only over in this way for those who are faithful unto the end. Saving faith is a persevering faith. I'm not separating present and future justification. What I'm saying is that a faith that justifies now, that is real saving faith, will endure until the end. Endure through what? All of it. Every day God has you on this planet and living this life, whatever you may endure, maybe you suffer, maybe you're crippled, maybe you have lost so much and you look at others like Asaph and says, Lord, I looked at the wealth of the unbelievers and I I almost lost faith until I entered into the sanctuary of God. And it is there in the sanctuary of God that the word righted my perspective and I remember that there is a city coming And I want to be in the throng when the gates are opened and I get to go in because Christ will lead me into that city. And so I have one simple word of exhortation. Well, I've had a lot. (laughs) Dress yourself for that day. 
It is not enough to contemplate the words of the law to be motivated to keep it. We must, in order to keep the law, have hearts that are compelled by devotion and love for our Redeemer. Are you struggling to dress yourself? (laughs) You know what I mean. Children, I don't mean putting your socks on for church or you can't ever find anything. But in the same way that you learn and you mature to dress yourself for life, to go to work, to go to church, you clothe yourself in the righteousness, the fruit that the Spirit brings. Because our desire, as we see this glorious comfort, is to also heed the warning. If our identity with the thing, is with the things that we see in verse 8, cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, if that is who we are, I don't mean that we never do those things. But if our primary identity, if we are covenantally hitched to rebellion, this will be our end. But if we are covenantally hitched and we are clinging to Christ, God will, through time, make us what? Like himself. And I will say this, there will be a lot left to do for all of us that Christ must finish when he comes. But dress yourself for what is to come. What does Paul say? Lay aside every weight of hindrance and run the race before you. Let's pray. Lord, make us such a people devoted to love and good deeds as those who've been united to you in your death and resurrection. We pray these things in your name. Amen.